Come on down. I want to teach you all a song that I learned when I was about some of your all's age. Maybe about Abby's age here. And it's a song about the person that I am named after. Now, what's my name? David. David. And so who might I be named after? Yet yeah, David and Goliath, but not the Goliath part, just the David part. <laughs> My middle name is Aaron, not and Goliath, right? So, yeah, just want to clarify that. Now, here's the song, and it has some motions, okay? And if you want to do the motions with me, you can. You might even know this song. Okay, it goes like this. Only a boy named David, only a little sling. Only a boy named David, but he could play and sing because he played the harp, right? They didn't have pianos or guitars. So play and sing. Only a boy named David. Only a little brook. Only a boy named David. And how many stones? Five. Five little stones he took. And one little stone went in the sling. And the sling went round and round. And one little stone went in the sling. And the sling went round and round. And round and round and round and round and round and round and round. It hit the giant in the head, and the giant came tumbling down. All right, so that song I learned. Oh, well, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Encore, you want me to sing it again? I don't think so. So that's how I actually learned the story of David and Goliath was that song. At first when I was little, I thought that song was about me. And then I realized I didn't own a sling, and I'd never slain a giant. So... Uh, I've learned the story of David and Goliath, and I thought it was pretty cool that I was named after David. And the, and the, the older I got and the more I went through church, I learned that David was a shepherd boy who became a king, that he killed that giant, that he was a man after God's own heart, and I sure was proud to be named after David. But as I got older, I also learned that David wasn't perfect, and David made mistakes. And just like all of us, David said things that weren't true, and he did things he shouldn't do, and David sinned against God. And that kind of disappointed me a little bit in my childhood hero until I learned something about myself. Guess what? I'm like David in that way too because I sometimes didn't tell things that were true. And sometimes I was selfish. And sometimes I said things that were hurtful. And I did things that I knew were not pleasing to God. And the Bible calls that sin. But then as I got older, I learned something else about David. And that's that even though David messed up and he did things that were wrong, and he sinned against God, you know what else he did? He owned up to his mistakes. And when he sinned, he confessed those sins. He prayed to God and said, God, I sinned, and I'm sorry. Forgive me and help me not to do it again. And just like God helped David to kill Goliath, God helped David to overcome his sins. And he will do the same thing for us. So I know that this week, at some point, you're going to do something you're not supposed to do. You think so? Well, I'm not that old. (laughs) So when you this week do something you shouldn't do, okay, maybe you say something that's unkind, maybe you don't share, maybe you disobey your parents, what should you do? Ask God to forgive you. And then what should you maybe do? Say you're sorry to whoever you hurt or disobeyed, right? So let's pray right now, and let's ask God to help us this week when we know we're going to make mistakes and mess up to help us do the right thing. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for examples of people like David in the Bible to show us how you want us to live, but also to show us that nobody's perfect except Jesus. 
And so this week, when we all will have an opportunity to sin against you and to mess up and make a mistake, God, help us not to try to excuse it or deny it, but just to own up to it, to say we're sorry, and to ask for forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, children, you can go with Ben to Children's Church through first grade. Last week, last Sunday, we looked at the rise and the fall of Israel's first king. And Saul's problems were basically, we discovered two things, selfish pride and this obsession with religious rituals, empty religion, really. Now, Saul may have praised God with his lips, but we know that Saul's heart was far from the Lord. He was really only interested in what he could get from God, not so much what he could do for God. And so the Lord rejected Saul in favor of finding a king who would be a man after his own heart. So God sent Samuel to Bethlehem to a family named, of a man named Jesse. And he went and Jesse brought out all of his big, strong, tall, handsome sons. And Samuel went one by one through them and was surprised to find that none of them were the ones that God had chosen to be the next king. But then the Lord says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so it was Jesse's youngest son, David, the shepherd boy, who was anointed as king. And as a young man, as we talked about a few minutes ago, we know David slew the giant Goliath. Uh, with a sling and a stone, trusting that the same God who had delivered him time and again from the bear and the lion who were going after his sheep, this same God would deliver him from the hand of this Philistine. And then David went on to serve in Saul's palace. He was at first a musician, and then an armor-bearer, and then finally a general. David became this mighty warrior who led Saul's troops into battle. And after Saul's death, David took the throne. And he proved himself to be a wise, just, victorious king. David established Jerusalem as both the political and religious capital of Israel and even brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city. David then wanted to build a house for God. He didn't feel like it was right that he lived in this palace and God's Ark lived in a tent. So he wanted to build a house for God. And really that's kind of the high point of David's story. For all intents and purposes, at that point, we know that David was a king, a great king, that he truly was a man after God's own heart, that he led the people of Israel to faithfully worship the Lord, not chasing after idols. In fact, he and the people served the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, it's like the nation of Israel finally became everything that God had promised Abraham and Moses and Joshua that it would be. And at this point... God said to David through the prophet Nathan, Thanks, but no thanks on the house for me. You want to build me a house, but instead I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty that will last for all generations. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 13, we see this covenant that God makes with David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What a high point in David's life. But sadly, it's not long after this 
that we go from this spiritual high point crashing down to a spiritual low. In 2 Samuel 11, just a few chapters later, we learn about the darkest moment in King David's life. After all the blessing and the success and the victory and and basically leading Israel into this golden age of peace and prosperity, David falls into a deep, dark web of sin. You probably know the story. Right, David fell to the sin of temptation and lust, and he committed adultery with this married woman named Bathsheba. And she became pregnant. And in order to try to cover up his indiscretion, David eventually has her husband killed on the field of battle. And so he takes Bathsheba to be his own wife, thinking that they have covered their bases and no one will ever know what they had done. And so chapter 11 closes with this terrible series of sins. Lust, adultery, lying, and murder hanging like a dark cloud over David and his kingdom. And what's interesting is that God didn't immediately punish David. At least nine months pass before God confronts David over his sin. But I don't think that that period in between chapters 11 and 12 were a peaceful period. I think that the king was troubled. I think that while David maybe didn't tell anybody what he had done, David knew what he did. His general Joab knew what he did. He's the one who fetched Bathsheba for him. I'm sure there were probably a few servants in the palace that had an idea of what went down, and certainly Bathsheba knew. Their sin was ever before them. Can you imagine how their relationship suffered? Every time David looked into her eyes, he saw the hurt, the betrayal, And the guilt reflected back at him. There was no joy, no peace in the palace. There was no anticipation at the birth of this child. There was only pain and guilt. I mean, David was the king who walked with God, who sang praises to the Lord. He was the king that the Lord had blessed and promised to preserve his throne through all generations. And now David looks at the remnants of his broken vows. He sees the shattered dreams and the ruined lives lying all around him. David sinned, and he knows it. In fact, we can get a glimpse into what's going on in David's heart and mind by reading Psalm 32 and 51. They were written about this very sin that he committed. This was no carefree time of love and happiness. This was a time of great pain and guilt and suffering. In fact, just in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then in verses 3 and 4 of 51, he says, For I knew my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David was broken by the weight of his sin, and the guilt was unbearable. But in the midst of this tragedy, God had a plan to restore David. He had a plan to forgive David of his sins and to restore him to fellowship with himself and to reclaim his life as a man after God's own heart. So today I want us to examine the steps that God took to deal with King David's sin. And may it help us when we're forced to deal with the sin in our own lives, or maybe even the sin in the lives of others. The first thing we see is that sin must be confronted. 
Sin must be confronted. Now, you may say, well, why did the Lord wait so long before He confronted David with this sin? Well, it could be a number of reasons. It could be that, that David just wasn't ready to be confronted with his sin until this moment. Perhaps God wanted David to have those nine or so months to wrestle within his own heart over the guilt and the shame that he felt, to see for himself how that excitement and pleasure of sin in the moment always leads to a lingering regret and an oppressive sense of guilt and long-term consequences. Whatever God's reason, we know that He confronted David at the perfect time. He knew when He needed to bring this up to David so that He would get the result that He wanted. And God uses the same strategy with us. You know, some people, they, they, they sin and they think that, well, maybe they're getting a free pass for the time. Maybe God doesn't really care about this. Maybe God's just kind of winking and nod, you know, slap on the wrist or something, let's move along. But we need to be aware that God is always at work behind the scenes, even when we don't know it. And that sin may be fun for a moment, but the pain and the scars that it leaves last a lifetime. In Galatians 6, 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And when the time is right, rest assured, God will confront us and He will call us back to Himself. So let's notice what happened in David's heart as he was confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said... There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep and cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who would come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who would come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. When David hears this tale, this story, it angers him. It stirs up this righteous indignation. He wonders, how can anyone living in his kingdom be this cruel and unjust? And so he demands that the rich man restore what he had taken four times over. And then he demanded the man be executed for his crime. Isn't it amazing that the man who excuses sin in his own life can be so harsh and critical when dealing with the sin in another's life. Kind of reminds us of what Jesus said about removing the plank from your own eye before you go after the speck of dust in someone else's eye. But then David hears the words that he never expected to hear. Nathan looks at him and says, You are the man. It's you, David. You took the only thing Uriah had in this life, and then you took his life. You had it all, but you wanted more. You are the man. David was exposed. He was found out. The sin he thought he had so carefully hidden away was now exposed for all to see. 
Now the chickens, as they say, had come home to roost. And there was a price to be paid. You see, that's what Satan does. He tricks us into foolishly believing that we can successfully hide our sins forever. But God knows exactly where every one of our skeletons are hidden. In fact, Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And when the time is right, God will confront that hidden sin and expose it for what it is. And it was just that right moment for David. And, and when it happened, that moment for him was a shocking moment when he was called to account for his sins. And that's why we should always keep a short account with God, isn't it? Because He will call us to account. So we need to every day confess, repent, and, and ask for forgiveness of our sins. I also want to point out here what a masterful parable Nathan tells. I mean, isn't it a great way that Nathan crafts this fictitious story to stir David's heart and to expose David's sin to himself. And David doesn't even realize that's what's happening. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Don't we all need a Nathan in our lives to do that for us, to someone who loves God and who loves us enough to be honest with us, to point out those blind spots and to hold us accountable? And we need somebody who's going to do it in gentleness and love, but also who will do it with courage and with wisdom. That's what Nathan does for David. You know, I used to picture Nathan sort of pointing his finger in David's face and wagging it in his face and indignation, you know, on, on, on Nathan's face, raising his voice saying, Thou art the man! That's how I kind of used to picture that. But instead, I think Nathan probably said those words with tears running down his cheeks, with a note of sadness in his voice, broken-hearted over having to confront his friend with this sin. Nathan took no joy. He took no delight in having to make David face up to this. And that should be our attitude. Whenever we might have the opportunity to confront a brother or sister in their sin, and as a, as a pastor and as a youth minister, there have been times where I've had to confront people with their sin. And I've had to call people on, on things that they had done or said maybe that weren't true. And I've always tried to never do those things in anger or with condemnation or with any kind of sense of, of self-righteousness. Instead, we should always confront our fellow Christians in a spirit of love, out of broken hearts, remembering that there but for the grace of God go I. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And so though Nathan shocks David with this confrontation, I think that Nathan confronts David in this kind of spirit of gentleness and humility. Not only does David experience shock, but he also experiences shame and sorrow. Let's pick back up there with verse 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? 
You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Nathan reminds David not only of the sin that he committed, but he reminds David of all of the goodness that God has showed him. All the ways that God has blessed him. God anointed him king over Israel. God gave him the throne of Saul. And that probably was a, a reminder to David that Saul lost that throne because of his behavior and his, his unrepentant heart. So there's probably a little bit of a reminder there as well. He reminds David that it's, it's because of God's gift to him that he is where he is and he is who he is that David didn't deserve any of this, and is this how David repays the Lord for his grace and kindness? What a stinging rebuke. Can you imagine how broken David's heart must have been at this point? Consider a moment the grace and blessings God has given you. You know, gratitude for God's goodness and remembering all He has done for us, those should act as shields to guard us from Satan's temptations, to guard our minds from evil thoughts. Time and again, in fact, the Bible tells us that the, the, one of the best ways to avoid sin is to hide God's Word in your heart, to not let it depart your lips, to meditate on it day and night, to remember all that God has done for you and to have a continual spirit of gratitude. If that's the kind of heart we have, we're far less likely to fall to Satan's traps. You can almost hear the sadness in Nathan's voice as he asks David, why did you do this? After all that God has done for you, David, how could you do this? Not only was David sorrowful for his actions, but Nathan was sorrowful. And God was sorrowful. It must have broken God's heart to see the man that he called a man after his own heart in such a pitiful condition. And don't you think that our sins hurt the Lord just as deeply? Don't you think that our sins cause just as much sorrow for God and for those that we know and love? I mean, look at all that God has done for you. Consider for a moment His deep and abiding love for you, a love that drove Jesus to Calvary's cross. When you deserve death and hell, Jesus suffered both for you. God has been so good to us. Amen? He meets our needs. He carries our burdens. He blesses us in big and small ways every day. And how often do we act like we owe Him nothing? Like somehow we just had all that coming to us anyway. And when temptation comes knocking, we forget who we are. And we forget about the Lord. And we lose ourselves in the pleasure of the moment. How that must break the heart of God. Because life is not about our pleasure and our happiness, is it? It's all about Jesus. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the author of our life. He is the creator and sustainer of all that there is. It is in Jesus that we live and move and have our being. He is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, and the source of our life. He is the goal and destination of our life. May we consider what our sins cost Him. So first, sin must be confronted. Secondly, sin must be confessed. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Once confronted with the sin, David didn't try to deny it. He didn't try to excuse it. He didn't try to shift blame like Saul would have done. No justifications. David simply owned up to what he had done. We can probably imagine that following that initial shock, shame, and sorrow, David probably experienced some relief. Like a burden had been lifted. Because living in secret sin, that's a heavy burden to bear. And as we heard in David's Psalms, it drains you of life and joy and strength. But there was probably also a sense of dread. So, you know, it was sort of a mixed bag. There's the shock and the sorrow and the shame and then this sense of relief. But then this sudden sense of dread because he remembers what the consequences are for what he has done. The Old Testament law says that if you're a murderer and you're an adulterer, there's only one thing for you. And that's to be executed. Specifically to be stoned to death. Yet Nathan says you are forgiven and you will not die. In this case, God commuted the death sentence. And why? Why would God do that? Well, because of His grace. And because of His promise to David. And because despite his failures, David was still a man after God's own heart. So instead of justice, David received mercy. David's sin was forgiven, his crime pardoned, his relationship with God restored. Listen in Psalm 32, 1-5, what David said happened when he dealt with his sin. He says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed. He felt blessed. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is what God does. When we freely and sincerely confess our sins... God forgives us. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when we confess that we have sinned, that we've missed the mark of God's plan and purpose for our lives, that we've overstepped our bounds and transgressed against the commands of God, He will forgive us. Period. David says in Psalm 32 that God forgave him, and covered his sins. So when David refused to cover up his sins, but confessed them, then God covered up his sins with his mercy and his grace. And God no longer counts his sin against him. He takes away David's guilt. This is the gift God gives when we turn to him for forgiveness. When we deal with our sin in honest confession, God forgives and removes our sin and that stain from our lives. When we handle our sin as David did instead of as Saul would have done with denial and with deflecting and with defensiveness, then forgiveness and restoration are always the results. It's a guarantee. It's a promise from God. When David's sin was forgiven, he was made right in his relationship with God, he stood before the Lord as one who was justified. 
Now, does that mean that there were no consequences? No. David was forgiven by God. The guilt was taken away. But there was still a fallout from what he had done. And the next few verses teaches us the truth that David still had to face some consequences for his choices. Look with me, beginning in verse 10. Now therefore the sword... This is Nathan still talking to David. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went to his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, we spoke to David and he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. And David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he went to his own house and ate at his request. They served him food and, the, and he ate. His servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up to eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Numbers 3.23 gives us fair warning. You may be sure that your sin will find you out. Now, that's not a threat. It's really not even a promise. It's just a statement of fact. It's just the way that life works. You know, science teaches us that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. The Bible says it this way, you will reap what you sow. And because God is a God of love and grace, He always forgives our sin instantly and completely when we genuinely confess and turn from our sin to Him. And at times, in His mercy, God may even mitigate the consequences of our sins just as He spared David from the legal consequences of his sins, which would have been death. But God never promises that He will necessarily spare us from the natural consequences of our sins. And this is a, a, a principle that's out, spelled out in the Bible many times. Again, in Galatians 6, Paul says, Do not be envied. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So let's very briefly notice the following things about the consequences that David would face for his sin. First, they would be permanent consequences. 
Because David tried to cover up his sin with violence, violence would never depart from David's family. What a tragic price David had to pay for his sin. He would later lose three of his sons to the sword. Absalom would kill his brother Amnon because Amnon raped their sister. Absalom himself would be killed in battle because he was trying to overthrow David's throne in an in a attempt at a coup. And then later when Solomon becomes king, one of David's other sons, Adonijah, tries to usurp the throne and Solomon kills him. David's sin affected him and his family for years to come. He would see his wife's treated with the same contempt that he showed for Bathsheba. In fact, his own son Solomon would go into his wives in public view of the people. And, and David's sin, it kept him from properly dealing with the sins of his own children, with their own problems and wickedness. When it came to his sons, David, it's almost like he just turned a blind eye to their pride and their lust and their shameful behavior. And in the end... David paid a high price for that one night of pleasure. He reaped what he sowed. The sin was forgiven, but it began a series of events that had to play out. And it would do us well to think about the fallout of our sins. Have you ever considered what might happen and who might be hurt if you took that fatal step away from God and towards sin? Are you willing to pay that high price? You never know whose life might be ruined because of an indiscretion in your own. Don't think for a moment that your sins won't find you out. That they won't affect the innocent people around you. Don't think for a minute that you can do as you please and it has no effect on anyone else. Because you're deceiving yourself when you believe that. May the Lord help all of us to count the cost of our choices. It was a permanent Consequence. It was also public. What David had done in secret, the Lord would do in the open. Everyone would know what David had done. And he would pay that price in full view of the world. This is one of the great tragedies of sin in our lives. It has the power to expose us, to lay us bare. Not just expose what we did, but what we did exposes the true flaws that are in our heart. The pride, the arrogance, the greed, the lust the idolatry. They may be hidden for a while, but eventually the truth will come out and the sin and the sinner will be exposed. Think of what this could mean for your life and your family, for any ministry that the Lord might want you to be a part of. We should protect ourselves and stay away from sin. Third, we see that it was painful. God allowed the baby born of this adulterous affair to become sick and die. I can't imagine David having to go home and tell his wife that their newborn baby is going to die and it's his fault. I can't imagine the pain. Now, I'll be honest with you. I struggle with this consequence. It doesn't really seem fair that this innocent child has to die for his father's sin. But then, you know, I thought about it. How many children around the world every day suffer for the choices of their parents. It happens all the time. Now, you may wonder if God really struck down this 
child or was there some pre-existing health problem when it was born that acted maybe as a natural consequence for the way it was conceived? We don't really know. We do know that infant mortality was very high in that day and age. But either way, David mourned and grieved for this child while it was sick. He fasted and prayed for his healing for seven days. But the child died just as God said it would. And if we add him to the other three children, you know what? David lost four children. Do you remember what sentence he imposed on Nathan's fictitious man? That he should have to repay fourfold what he took? David took the life of Uriah, and he repaid that fourfold. Finally, we see that the consequences were profound. Of all the horrible things that came out of David's sin with Bathsheba, perhaps the worst is the fact that the Lord's name was dishonored among the surrounding nations. Those who lived in contempt of the Lord, they all, you know, they would look at that. You know, there are people that live around us, just like there are people who lived around David that have contempt for the Lord. They have false beliefs about God. Maybe the people surrounded David thought that, well, God isn't really that just. Or maybe they thought, well, God doesn't really care that much about sin. Or, you know, there's really nothing wrong with adultery and murder and lying. Whatever their wrong belief, Nathan says, David, you've confirmed it. You have have confirmed the contempt in their heart because you're supposed to be God's king and your actions showed contempt for the Lord. And you have reaffirmed for these people, if God just doesn't do anything and just lets you get off scot-free, then you're confirming among these people their wrong beliefs about God. This is one of the worst consequences that any of us could face for our sins. Because our sins can cause others to stumble in the faith. Our sin can be roadblocks that keep other people from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. God's reputation is tarnished and His name is dragged through the mud when we sin. And as Christians, our first and greatest thought should always be for the glory of God. And when we sin, we're thinking about our own glory. We're taking God off the throne and putting ourselves there, basically doing what Absalom tried to do and enacting a coup against the king of the universe. That's treason. That's blasphemy. That deserves judgment. We're supposed to draw others to Jesus, not push them farther away. But when we're guilty of living like the lost world around us, it hinders the cause of Christ and dishonors the name of Jesus. Heard a story about a little boy who had a a bad habit of lying. He just could not stop telling lies. And so his dad told him one day, said, Son, you've got to stop lying. Here's what I want you to do. Every time you tell a lie, every time I catch you in telling a lie, I'm going to give you a nail and a hammer. You're to go out to the fence post out back and, and hammer a nail into that fence post. And sure enough, every time the son told a lie, the father gave him a nail, and eventually that whole fence post was covered in nails. And the son looked at that one day and realized what he had done, and realized the problem that he had. He, he got what his dad was trying to tell him. He says, Dad, what do I do about this? And the dad said, well, you need to pray and ask God to forgive you. And ask God to help you to stop lying and start telling the truth. He says, if you do that, here's what I'll do. Every time you tell the truth, I'm going to take a nail out of that fence post. And so sure enough, the son 
did that and he changed. He started telling the truth and one by one the nails came out until the last one was pulled out and his dad looked out the window and he saw his son sitting in front of that fence post crying. And he went and he said, Son, what's the matter? The, the, the nails are all gone. This is great. And he said, But Dad, look at the scars. Look at the nail prints. They're still there. And that's so true for us. God forgives us our sins, but the scars are still there. It doesn't take much sin to leave an eternal mark on a life, a family, a community, or a nation. David learned this harsh lesson. Some of us in this room have learned that lesson. While sin always carries a great price tag, it doesn't have to be as bad as it could be. If there's unconfessed sin in your life today, I challenge you to bring it to Jesus. To confess it. To repent of it. To turn away from it. To ask for God's forgiveness. To ask for His strength to right any wrongs that you've committed. To ask for His strength to endure any consequences that may come. And so I want to ask us right now, before we have our invitation, I want to extend sort of a, a different invitation. I want to invite all of us right now to do just that. I invite you to bow your head and close your eyes right where you are. Maybe during this sermon, God has brought a sin to mind in your life that you need to confess and ask for forgiveness and ask God to help you to turn from and make right. Let me give you a few moments to do just that. Maybe this morning things are right between you and the Lord. I want to encourage you to be in prayer about how you can maybe be a Nathan to somebody who is following the wrong path. Maybe you know somebody who has wandered away from God. They've made some terrible decisions and, and you see that their life is on a, a trajectory that could only lead to destruction and ruin. Pray about how God could use you to lovingly, courageously help that person turn from the error of their ways. Almighty God, we thank You for Your grace, for Your mercy, Your mercies which are new every morning. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Help us, out of our love for You, to be faithful and true. And when we falter and when we fail, to confess it and turn from it and pursue Jesus. And help us, God, in love to reach out to our brothers and sisters around us and to encourage them to stay on the path. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe this morning you need to come to Jesus Christ for the first time in confession of your sin and repentance and ask Him to be your Lord and Savior. You know, as Christians, when we sin, we confess that sin and and we repent of it so that we can experience the fullness of God's fellowship. But for those who have never put their faith in Jesus, there's no fellowship with God to restore. The Bible says you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but in Jesus Christ you can be made alive again. Would you come this morning and put your trust in Jesus? Or maybe today God would have you unite with this church family to worship and follow God together with us. Whatever God's laid on your heart, let's stand and sing today.